Welcome to the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. And I'm your host today, Luke Fowler, here with uh, my co-host, Corey Cook. And we have a special guest with us, uh, Ross Burkhardt, one of our colleagues and friends from the School of Public Service at Boise State. Ross, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Luke. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so uh, we're going to have an interesting show today, um, and not just us randomly talking about the Oscars and other news stories like we <laughs> did in previous weeks. Uh, except uh, we invited Ross to actually bring you know some expertise and class to the show and, uh, and talk about the oscars oh and talk about it right. no i don't, I don't know <laughs> oh, if we're good gonna, yeah we'll, we'll work that in in the fourth segment um uh so ross why don't we start by you uh telling our audience a little bit about yourself your, your background and what you do sure so so i've been here in boise since uh, 97 uh, i was hired as a visiting professor at first and then they liked me well enough uh, to hire me in 98 and i've been uh here ever since uh in the college of social sciences and public affairs so i'm old enough to remember that <laughs> and uh, i've taught about uh two dozen different courses here at Boise State, everything from intro to politics to uh, courses at the master's level in political science, public administration, and in fall I'll be teaching a PhD seminar uh, for the first time in our uh, uh, PhD program. So I've uh, done a lot of different things, and uh, uh, it's really been a pleasure to see Boise grow the way that it is, and uh, Radio Boise as well. And you've taken over the leadership of the PhD program. I, I will in August, yeah. so I'm, I'm learning from Jen, okay. uh, who is absent today, but uh, uh, she's been showing me the ropes, and uh, hopefully I can continue the great momentum that we have in the Ph.D. program. We've had several students successfully defend dissertations, and it's really cool to see it take off. Yeah. So, uh, Ross, you're a comparative, correct? A comparativist. Comparativist. Yes, yeah. if I can get all those syllables out. That's political a, science. Yes, yes. That, that would be what I was going for, but sure. I didn't quite get it all out of my mouth. Anyway. So, can you tell us what, you, like, what that does, or like how that's different from other political scientists? Uh, absolutely. So, I was trained as a comparativist. Uh, at my uh, alma mater, the University of Iowa. And that meant that I was seeking to explain political behavior in uh, a lot of different units, um, units that were relatively alike. So my uh, research, dissertation research, involved uh, comparing countries, and in particular, countries' level of democratic performance. So imagining that you could measure democracy on certain dimensions. Uh, I was interested in trying to explain the, the variation in uh, democratic performance. So uh, being a comparativist involves uh, finding units that are interesting to compare, a behavior that is also of interest, a political type of behavior, and democracy kind of fits that, uh, and then uh, seeking explanations for that variation. So uh, so my work is uh, uh, very much along that particular line. And this is a kind of an interesting time to be a student of democracy. Very interesting time. Um, when I first got into this field, it seemed like democracy was going up, up, up. This was mm -hmm. right after the, the end of the Cold War. And uh, there's the a end great of deal. history, right? Yeah, the end of history, uh -huh. right? And we know how that turned out, right? right? <laughs> we're still here, so we're still creating history. Um, but uh, the uh, the ability to explain uh, democratization uh, has changed quite a bit mm -hmm. over time as well. We've accumulated a lot of data, a lot of information, a lot of new analytic techniques. So it's kind of exciting uh, to see this field in the way that it works. So uh, one of your, and kind of going along with this, uh, one of 
of your kind of main areas of research is looking at the relationship between democracy and economic development, correct? And That's right. We had uh, another one of our colleagues, uh, Nisha Bellinger, on a couple of weeks ago, talk about her work on democratic backsliding and its effects on foreign investments and uh, some of those uh, implications in, in kind of various countries around the world, including uh, Venezuela and Turkey. But uh, what, is, like, what, what is that relationship between democracy and economic development? Because mm-hmm. it's a little bit more complex than what we like to pretend it is, right? Oh, oh a- absolutely. So... Um, if, uh, if, if I could uh, kind of dovetail off of Nisha a little bit, um, I look at economics in a very broad sense. So I'm interested in a country's GDP per capita um, or uh, as a proxy its energy consumption because communist countries were known to fudge the GDP figures back mm-hmm. when I was first starting this uh, particular line of research. Um, so I, I look at economic uh, de- development or wealth very broadly and uh, over time, what we have found is there is what's called a nonlinear relationship between economic development and democracy. So if you can imagine a curve where you can't get above a certain level of democracy, it's kind of like a threshold where you, where you can't break through and have any more democracy. Well, economic development leads to that particular height, and then it plateaus. So after a certain amount of income, you really don't gain much more in terms of democracy. So um, that that level of income is probably in the $7,000, $8,000 per capita range. And then after that, you start to plateau out and maintain a fairly high level of democracy. So uh, amongst the countries that uh, are democratic, it's very hard to find a major amount of backsliding over the years once you've reached a certain level of economic development. So that's a finding that, uh, that I've, I've found fairly consistently over the years that I've studied this particular topic, going all the way back into the early 70s, and even, and I've done some research that even looks back in earlier centuries as well, and that same type of nonlinear relationship holds up. So what is the kind of the causal pathway here? And maybe that's too complex of a, of a phrase to use. Uh, but basically, like, how does democracy or how does economic development equal out to democracy, right? This isn't just like something that happens with a magic wand, correct? Right. That's that's right. And I should add as well that statistically, I've been able to show that there is a causal relationship that economic development, uh, as it increases, has a prior Effect and then democracy is affected by economic development. So there is there is statistically a causal relationship. So what seems to happen is that as um, as a middle class grows and as people gain economic power and economic voice, if they don't already have a political voice, they start to seek this out. And so uh, we see this in uh, civil society. Uh, we see this in social movements. Uh, we see this in a uh, growing uh, desire of the public to be involved in their own political affairs if they were in a polity that did not allow them uh, that type of involvement. So as economic development grows, that demand for political voice also grows. One of my uh, professors in in grad school explained it to me uh, a little differently, basically using Maslow's hierarchy of needs and said, you know, basically, if you're, you're worried about where you're going to eat 
Um, you don't really have time to think about how your government is ruling you. Um, but as you get some of those basic things dealt with, like you have more time to start thinking about like policy choices and stuff like that. And so that's a pretty important relationship for us, isn't it? It is an important relationship. Another another way to uh, express that Maslowian idea is uh, through Ronald Engelhardt's work on materialist and post-materialist perspectives, where materialism involves basic security needs. And once you've satisfied those, then you achieve more of a post-materialist perspective. And and that might also allow for more uh, liberal political participation. So how does how does income inequality complicate this? It does, uh, and uh, income inequality is another factor that uh, that I've also studied in uh, published research. Income inequality complicates this a little bit to the extent that there needs to be some sort of uh, equitable distribution uh, of income, and again, it is a nonlinear relationship. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, you have to almost imagine an upside down U curve where there's a plateau right at the very top where not too much income equality and not too much income inequality. It's kind of like a Goldilocks mm. sort of perspective. It's just the right amount where uh, that also helps to uh, increase democratization. Well, uh, so very interesting stuff. I mean, particularly as we're, we're talking about democracy, economic development, um, issues like this in the, the worldwide news, but also here domestically in the last few years. Um, and so we're going to get to some of these issues in, in the, the next uh, two segments, but uh, we got to take a quick break uh, first. Hi, this is Cecil Baldwin from Welcome to Night Vale. You're tuned in to Radio Boise, your source for music and public affairs programming in Boise and beyond. Welcome back to the Big Ten on Radio Boise, and uh, I'm your host, Luke Fowler, here with Corey Cook and our special guest, Ross Burkhart. And, uh, the first segment, we're talking about uh, the relationship between democracy and economic development, but now we want to move on to uh, some, some interesting trends that are going on politically, uh, particularly in Europe, but really a worldwide trend and definitely something that's uh, affected the United States, is uh, the concept of populism, right, mm -hmm. that has been popping up in the, first, uh, in the last few years. Um, probably one of the, the most notable things about this would be things like Brexit, correct? Um, um, which, uh, did I pronounce that correct? I think you did. Okay. Just making sure. Uh, we're uh, still trying to figure out who came up with that name, but we'll, we'll get to that <laughs> later. Um, so I, I guess the first question is, like, when we say populism or that's used in the media, like, what do we mean by that? Yeah, that's, a, that's a really good question. Uh, old friend of mine told me that populism is not popular music, for one thing, <laughs> right? So we can't mistake it for that. Um, but um, populism involves what I would call mass appeal politics on the basis of grievance and something lost, some sort of identity lost. And uh, to be a populist thus is to tap into those feelings of being left out or being neglected uh, and acting as a voice uh, for these disaffected people. So especially in regard to the financial crisis that took place uh, about a decade ago and still reverberating in some uh, respects today, uh, Europe felt that particularly hard and many of European countries uh, had what was called a, a populist moment where either the party in government uh, was populist or a significant part of the opposition. So Brexit kind of fits that particular mold. Uh, but uh, I can think of a lot of other countries uh, from Spain in Western Europe over to Poland in Eastern Europe, uh, Hungary, uh, Netherlands, France, uh, Sweden. It, it's hard to think of a country that hasn't been touched by the notion of populism. 
we've, we've talked quite a bit on the show about populism in the American context. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I, think, I think the way you define populism is exactly what we're seeing on the national stage here. At mm-hmm. the same time, probably the, the policies of the administration don't really satisfy, maybe the rhetoric does, but the policies don't satisfy mm-hmm. necessarily mm-hmm. Um, sort of populist aims. Mm-hmm. Is, is that similar to what you're seeing in Europe, or is it a different form of populism? It's a, it's a good point, Corey. So populism tends to be almost post-ideological in the mm-hmm. sense that there are populists on the right, uh, like the UKIP, for instance, the UK Independence Party, and then there are populists on the left in Greece, for instance. Uh, so um, populism can span the ideological spectrum. So the proposals that populists propose to uh, try to uh, help these disaffected people can range uh, across a broad spectrum of possible policies. So um, it's it's really hard to put a particular policy out there and say that's definitely populist, sure. other than to say that uh, the politicians who claim to be populists uh, really do tap into this disaffected undercurrent of uh, uh, political feeling and, uh, uh, and uh, also national identity, too. So on the point of national identity, like what's the relationship between populism and that other term that gets thrown around a lot, nationalism? Because mm-hmm. um, we've seen those. And so some people have identified these trends as nationalists, and that seems a little bit scarier of a term to describe mm-hmm. this, correct? Yeah, because uh, we, we think about European history and how nationalism is played out uh, in authoritarian movements, uh, fascism, Nazism, and so forth. Uh, populism doesn't go quite that far. These are still democratic countries. And uh, uh, the populist movement is strong, but not overwhelming. Um, the uh, the exception to that may be Hungary, in a sense, uh, because uh, Viktor Orban has managed to hold uh, power for quite a while. But um, even there, uh, there are robust uh, opposition parties. So we're not quite at the stage where we talk about nationalist uh, takeovers of government. And thus, uh, when we when we when we think about that in a historical context, we often think of anti-democratic. Movement. So that, that isn't really the case here. Uh, I'm intrigued by the phrase of populist moment. And I think we, we talk about that also in the context of American politics. Mm-hmm. And certainly we see, mm-hmm. you know, Trumpianism and, and, and its effect on the Republican Party as a populist moment. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing the Democratic Party is very similar. Mm-hmm. But is it just a moment? Right? How, 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 does, how does populism play out? Is it, is, it, is, it a, is it a period of, mm-hmm. of expression of angst and then sort of goes back to sort of more normal political times, or is it, are, are we going to be in this period for, for quite a long time? That's a great question, Corey. So, um, it, That's uh, my job here. You yeah, know, that's how I get the big bucks. It's, it's, yeah. it's to ask, it's to ask <laughs> great questions. Um, so how does populism play out? There's a problem that needs to be solved, it seems to me. And the problem is not being addressed by what are called establishment uh, politicians. So the problem that, uh, that populists uh, seek to solve is to create some sort of reform of politics. So President Trump often speaks of reform, right? Uh, Drain the swamp and all these other phrases that come up. And these are similar types of uh, sentiments from populist politicians around the world. Um, To the extent that they are successful or not, that's that's always a judgment that uh, remains for us to uh, for us to decide. But populist movements tend to ebb and flow 
based upon the reaction of anti-populist politicians, those who, those who seek to uh, create a more stable uh, type of political debate and discussion. So in the United States, the Democrats would, uh, in order to uh, move past this populist moment, would have to propose solutions that appeal to a majority of voters and are able to pass legislation that also helps to deal with some of these very real uh, issues that um, the disaffected peoples uh, talk about a lot. Uh, the problems of globalization, the uh, feeling left out, rural urban cleavages, all of those kinds of things. So uh, let's go back to, to Brexit and, and kind of when you're talking about this idea of the populist moment. Is Brexit a populist moment uh, or is it a long-term policy? Because one of the things that if you pay attention to the UK news is there's actually a lot of trouble trying to come up with a plan to make this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of the question is like, is this just like a idea that was good for, you know, 20 minutes while they're voting for it, it and it's not such a good idea? Is it an expression or is it actually a, a, a form of governance? Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> right. I, the easy answer is both. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Britain has long had a fraught relationship with the European continent. Um, they, they did not join the European Economic Community until 1973, a uh, full 20 years after it was first founded. Uh, and uh, there's long been a strain in British thought of skepticism about the intentions of Europe and kind of a proud removal, physical removal from the European continent. So uh, so Brexit is in part an expression of that independence and that uh, definition of national identity. But it is going to be uh, by March 29th when uh, removal from the European Union becomes a reality, it'll be a permanent populist moment as opposed to a temporary moment. So so this will be a permanent expression then of British political will. And they have not figured out exactly how to do this. The only thing that you can say consistently about British politics at the moment is that there is no majority support for any particular position in regard to Brexit. Well, I think that's really one of the interesting parts of this, right? Because it gets passed on a populist wave and then the establishment politi- uh, politicians were supposed to somehow put this in place and they just cannot come up with any type of agreement on this um, and so it's really straining the EU in a lot of ways and what's going to happen in the future it so is. any any predictions on how this plays out I um, I I, I hesitate to make a prediction. I will say that there's a generational split as well, that uh, that older, uh, the older you are, the more supportive of this particular populist moment. So millennials are really going to have to deal with the aftermath of this, too. So I wanted to make that particular mm-hmm. generational uh, argument as well. Um, I I will not predict how this is going to turn out. I'm going to watch it instead. Oh, man. Then you're on the wrong show because wild speculation is what we do best here. <laughs> That's our specialty. Yes. And uh, speaking of wild speculation, we're going to come back to U.S. politics in our next segment and do some wild speculation there. We have to take a quick break first. This is Community Radio for Boise, Beyonce, and beyond, beyond, beyond. Hello, everybody. This is Wayne from the Flaming Lips. And you're tuned into listener-supported community radio, KRBX 89.9 FM, Radio Boise, Radio Boise, Radio Boise.
All right, we're back on the Big Ten on Radio Boise, and uh, I'm your host, Luke, and I'm here with my co-host, Corey, and we have our special guest, uh, Ross Burkhart, talking about some interesting comparative politics things uh, going on around the world. But now we're going to uh, shift our lens back to the America uh, and Americas. Now, I was going to start with the United, United States, but Corey has a burning question about Canada, well, so, correct? Well, just, you know, Ross is an expert in Canadian politics, and I'm fascinated by what we're seeing in Canada, certainly in relation to the U.S., and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what you see in Canadian politics. Today. Sure. So I should I should add my, my expertise is confined to teaching a course in Canadian politics, <laughs> and I'm also executive director of a consortium of Canadian mm-hmm. studies institutions like Boise State in the Pacific Northwest. So yeah. so I pay attention to Canada to sure. that particular yeah, extent. Um, but uh, Canada is experiencing an old-fashioned type of political crisis right now. Uh, the prime minister is being accused of improperly influencing members of his cabinet, uh, including his former attorney general, in regard to a a major bribery case uh, that involves a uh, major uh, construction, international construction corporation. So, uh, so the uh, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, has been uh, enjoying, prior to this particular moment, a, a relatively uh, uh, good uh, series of events as uh, Prime Minister. Is popular in Canada? Relatively popular, and, yes. And certainly. A, uh, a- among sort of progressive liberal folks in the U.S., uh, enormous popularity. Very, uh, Yeah, enormous popularity. Half of his cabinet is female. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said the reason for doing that was that it's 2015, right, mm-hmm. meaning it's time to do that. So uh, so from, from that perspective, he had been doing well, and now he has to deal with this uh, particular crisis. Another crisis of Canadian politics is uh, the issue of trade with the United States and Mexico and uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, being reduced done uh, into something called the USMCA, which is uh, very much like the NAFTA, but has to pass Congress and has to pass through the national legislatures. So that's that's another issue for uh, Canadians internationally. But um, watch the news in Canada and see okay. what happens. It's uh, it's it's not a it's not a populist crisis. It's right. it's just a a, a a typical hiccup that government will often a have. Good old fashioned. Uh... You know, question about uh, you know scandal, right? Sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yes, scandals is one thing that we do well in America, <laughs> and so I'll uh, bring you back to the states. <laughs> That's a fantastic transition yeah you know i mean we've done way worse ones on this show so yeah i'm actually gonna be proud of that one that's gonna go in the highlight reel that is uh so uh we talked earlier about the idea of a a populist moment is america still having a populist moment or have we moved past that um well uh, as long as there is a trump presidency there's still going to be populist appeals uh trump uh, Trump's strategy appears to be doubling down on his base, uh, which is uh, one that identifies itself as uh, uh, being out of the loop uh, from the, the standpoint of establishment politicians. So uh, to the extent that Trump uh, remains in power, I think we're going to still talk about these particular populist themes. So you wrote an article uh, not too long ago about uh, some of the problems that went into predicting the 2016 elections, correct? <laughs> uh, and there was a lot. And I, for a reminder, our audience, is, as good as uh, pollsters and political scientists are, we basically all got it wrong, correct? In, in a certain respect, okay? So... Um, in the respect of, of, we all said that Trump would never be president. Yeah, right? Right. In that exactly. Respect. So yeah, I was hoping <laughs> if you could talk a little bit more about where those problems came in. Okay, so you need to be a little bit careful here. Right. Um, and by the way, this is all in the Blue Review, by the way, which is online and our uh, college outlet for a scholarship of certain yeah. sorts. I've had a few articles published there. You can uh, search for my name and you'll find this stuff. So um, 
I, we have to be careful about what it is we are predicting. We were predicting the popular vote as opposed to the electoral vote. And we being uh, several different forecasters, and I, I just simply looked at these forecasts. I didn't actually do a forecast, but I, I analyzed these forecasts, and they were within about a percentage point or so of the actual result. And thus, those who predicted a majority of the popular vote for Hillary Clinton were actually correct. They just didn't get the electoral college vote because that wasn't something that they were actually forecasting. We need to be careful about what it was that we were actually forecasting. So in uh, from what I've talked to some of our other uh, colleagues, uh, namely uh, Jeff Lyons and some other people, uh, is basically told me like, oh, yeah, the, the models were really accurate, except for a couple of counties in uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. So can I ask like the the kind of connecting with our conversation about populism how does populism influence some of the things that happened in 2016 and are we going to expect those same type of things to pop up again in 2020 you know what's what's really interesting about populism in the united states is the emphasis on uh media accuracy and continued exhortations by President Trump and his supporters about uh, media bias, right? So that comes up in the world of fake news and enemy of the people, all of those types of statements. And we know from uh, we know from current research, I think Steve Udick was on this program talking about polarization. One of the aspects of polarization is that people get their news and information from different sources, depending upon which camp you happen to be in. So for the for these forecasts to work, they rely on a common set of knowledge and information. And to the extent that we get information from different sources, it might be harder to do this type of forecasting. So if we look out to 2020, these particular models may have to take into account the fact that we get our news from different sources and we believe different sources of information, right? And we, ought, we have that affirmation bias as well, where when we see information that confirms what we think, then we believe it more and more. So as we look at uh, 2020, I'm interested on the on the Democratic side to see if they follow the path of Republicans. And and to me, the surprise in 2016 was more, I think a lot of folks anticipated that somebody from the non-establishment lane might win the Republican nomination. Mm-hmm. It just was never really thought that that would be Trump, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe Ted Cruz does, or, or maybe Rand Paul, or maybe, right? So there's mm-hmm. a lot of idea that this might be a different sort of year within the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. But still, even at the, you know, fairly late into the primary season, it didn't seem plausible that that would be Trump. Mm -hmm. As you look at the Democratic contenders now, Mm -hmm. uh, I think we have, again, multiple candidates who are outside of the establishment lane. Mm -hmm. Do you anticipate that ultimately that will be noise and ultimately the Democrats will nominate the most electable? Or can you imagine a scenario in which a truly populist Democratic nominee ends up uh, emerging. Look, any scenario is possible, especially when you have, I don't know, do we have 10 so far? And then we're probably going to go up uh, in the uh, above uh, uh, 12, 15, who knows right. how many we're right. going to have. So the more that we have, uh, by definition, there's more noise, right? Yep. So it's harder to break out of that particular pack. Um, it, it seems like there is a, uh, a 
bit of a divide between um, establishment uh, politicians like uh, Joe Biden, for instance, if he ever decides to, in <laughs> fact, run as he waits for a while and he can afford to do that. He keeps hiring staff, implying he might run, but then not announcing he will. So, who knows what the staff knows? might be doing, right? right? Exactly. So, yep. um, and then we have uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, all, all of these uh, uh, contenders. Some of them are slightly establishment. Some of them decidedly not. Um, and it's really hard for voters to sort that out, I think, at this point. So a lot of it is noise uh, right now. Um, boy, whoever catches fire, really. Right. You think about you think about Obama in 2008 catching fire. Uh, you know, you think about uh, Trump eventually getting to that particular point. There's there's a lot of personal magnetism and um, an appeal that we don't really know yet. It's just mm -hmm. it's just really too early, yeah. I think. So uh, in our last moments of the show, does anybody care to make wild speculation about 2020? Mm -hmm. Corey, I can see it on your you want to. I, I'm certain there'll be an election. Are we? That's that's, I, that that is actually kind of wild speculation at this point. That's all I got. <laughs> all right. You you heard it here first. There's going to be an election in 2020. I have no idea. I, I was one of those who thought that Trump would not survive the Iowa caucuses. So I, I, I have no idea. Yeah. We, yeah we, and, and we shouldn't know right now, right? I mean, Thank that's, you, Ross. Yeah, that's part of a democracy. We're supposed, right. to, we're supposed to be engaged in all this uh, deliberative thought and yelling and so forth. I mean, I, to me, the, the question is really this, this question. Do the Democrats follow the same path the Republicans did? And we see some of that going on in Congress. We see through the battle with Pelosi as Speaker in the same way we saw the Freedom Caucus taking on John Boehner. And ultimately, can the Democrats contain that and put forward a candidate that's likely to win? Or does that become sort of this populist moment take over the Democratic Party as well? Right. And, and, and leadership is involved there. Speaker yeah. Pelosi is very skilled in heading off some of this uh, uh, kind of agitation to put the Democratic House in a certain direction and, and mindset. Set, at least for now. At least right? for now, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, interesting thoughts. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Ross um, and Corey as well, being here. Uh, this has been the uh, Big Ten on Radio Boise.